and welcome back, everybody. This is week 49 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament, and we have three new prophets for you to study. This is a week of Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And if you've ever had a friend recommend a new restaurant or maybe a new store that you've never been into before, and then you were just delighted with what you found when you went in, that's how I felt about these books. It's not that I'd never read them before. I just had never gone through them in a lot of detail before, and I was surprised at how much I liked them. For very different reasons. They have different teaching styles. They're addressing different audiences. They're in different time periods. But between the three prophets, I felt like there was this resounding message of appreciate the space. And I'll try and go into this a little more with each one. But one of my favorite teachings that the Book of Mormon offers that we don't quite get in the Bible is this understanding of after the fall, there was this space granted unto man, this mortal space to perfect themselves, to repent. There's a lot of beautiful verses in the Book of Mormon that teach about how God granted us this space so that men would have time to come to him. And I feel like that was the message of all three of these prophets. It's where are you in that space? Each of them is going to address people at different points. Some like, for example, when we go into Nahum, he's going to teach the Ninevites a hundred years after Jonah, when things have gone downhill really fast and their space of time where they could have repented is pretty much at its end. And then you're going to shift gears and you're going to go into Habakkuk. Who's going to wonder why it is that God grants so much space to some <laughs> He's going to wrestle a little bit to try and understand why God allows wicked people to do wickedness, especially against his people. Interestingly, his people aren't doing a great job on their own, but he's basically saying, those guys are worse and you're letting them beat us. And he, he has to wrestle with that understanding. So he wonders about that space as well. Then you're going to get into Zephaniah and his words are more about the day of the Lord. It's kind of a message to all of us, both his time to the north, to the south, to all the surrounding areas. It, it's a message for us about how there will be a day of the Lord. There will be an end where we will need to stand and we will need to decide at that point where we stand. And his invitation is a really clear one, which is choose ye this day. I mean, those aren't his words, but that's the message I got from Zephaniah. It was, now you know, all your choices, and you know about this space that's granted unto men, so choose ye this day who you'll serve. And he says it in some of the most profound ways I've read in almost anywhere in scripture. So see, I told you, you're gonna love it. Okay, grab your scriptures, grab your notes. You guys, let's get started. When I was 19, I think, I got a chance to serve on a jury. And it's the only time in my life when I've been picked and actually had to attend court and got to be part of that process. And maybe because I was so young and fresh at the time, I loved it. I thought the whole thing was fascinating. I loved it. And one of the parts I remember most distinctly in my mind is when the head juror had to deliver our verdict. Because we deliberated and debated and all came to a consensus about what the verdict needed to be. And the man who was on trial was guilty, according to our understanding. And I remember the, the gravity in the room when the juror had to stand up and read our verdict. Not just because it was a hard verdict to say, but also because he knew the consequences that would probably befall the man who was on trial. And he, you could tell he appreciated the heaviness of that moment and the way he spoke, I'll just never forget it. I didn't even think of that moment for probably the last 10 years until I read Nahum. So when I was reading his message, this burden, that's what's called in verse one, it's the burden of Nineveh. Because when he goes to Nineveh, it's over a hundred years since Jonah's time. And this city that once had everyone converting all at once and they were in sackcloth and ashes, they have gone downhill fast. But they've also grown so where they were just kind of one of the cities of many in the last time we studied it, now Nineveh has become this great capital of Assyria, which is this huge empire, and it has swollen in its problems. It's, it's become that wicked, bloodthirsty, torturous group of people that we read about in the past, and their, their space to repent has run out. And that's basically Nahum's message, that their time has run out and that the Lord is furious. In fact, it was fascinating to me. If you look at two and three, it talks about the anger of God. That is, his anger is furious. That's the word that's chosen. 
that he'll take vengeance on his adversaries. And then in three, Nahum reminds them that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The contrast I thought was really interesting that he, I think this is the nature of God to have this level of temperance, to understand mercy and justice and keep it in this perfect balance. That's the nature of God. In fact, it reminded me of what we read in Peter in the New Testament. I think it's in Second Peter. It's in the notes if you want to go look at it. But he talks about that chain that leads us to godliness. So it starts at faith and goes to virtue and then knowledge, and then from knowledge to temperance and temperance to patience, and then from patience to godliness. That's the process, I think, that we're trying to learn from Nahum, is he's saying that God can do both these things, shows us that he is God. Because he he gave them lots of space to repent and lots of opportunities to change, and they chose not to. So now, in his perfect justice, he will not acquit the wicked, and there will be some harsh consequences. And you'll see some of those laid out in chapter one. But I think what's really interesting is, in addition to those consequences, you also hear Nahum talk about the goodness of God. Sentence seven is about where it begins. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Nahum is still a prophet of God, and God's character is good, and everything he does is for our good. So that's his, he's trying to help them understand, and I think trying to help me understand, that even when there are harsh consequences that come my way, his intent is to do me good. I think his intent with the Assyrians is to do them good. They're, they're at a point kind of like, remember with the city of Ammonihah in the Book of Mormon, and Alma and Amulek watched people burn, and Amulek really wanted to rush in. I'm sure Alma did too, but they really wanted to save those new converts from the fire, and they were held back by the Spirit um, because there needed to be consequences that play out. That's where Nahum is, and his message is strong like that one, and I'm sure it was hard to say and to carry out. But the invitation is, remember that God is good. He's good to all of you if you would just trust in him. In fact, I love the end of verse 7 because I feel like his invitation is almost like the ten virgins. You know, he says, I know you not. <laughs> you didn't know me. There is no, we've been talking the last few weeks about President Nelson's message from that October Leona magazine where he talked about covenants being a relationship. That's what I think of when I read verse 7, that he's basically saying to them, we have no relationship. You don't know me. You don't know my character and when you don't know me, you won't trust in me. So this is where we've ended up. I think it's really interesting also what he says in nine. He kind of adding to that thought. He says, what do you imagine against the Lord? That he will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. This idea of us imagining things against the Lord, I think is really interesting. Because I think we all have this tendency. <laughs> when things don't go well, you start to say things in your mind like, why would God let this happen? If he's a loving God, why would? And then you fill in the blank with whatever your trial or your friend's adversities might be. And you start imagining what God's purposes were or why he would allow things to happen. And honestly, for me, more often, I start to wonder if he is absent. You know, why would he let these things happen? He must be absent. And that, I think, is imagining things against the Lord. When you've built up a relationship with God and a trust in God, it's a lot easier to remember the long game. It's a lot easier to trust that he can make all things work together for good. It's a lot easier to understand that there are intersections of agency that will knock us off our feet, but he promises that he can make all things right. In fact, we'll see that in the verses here in just a little bit. But I love that reminder to not imagine wickedness against God. This is all because of their own choices. They were warned they chose it anyway. And so he, as this perfect and just God, will, will repay what they asked for. So that's what you'll see in the verses. Some other things you'll see as you go a little further in 14 and 15. Basically, the end will come. God will not be mocked. That was in the footnotes in a few different places. And there is no way that you can work your way through wickedness and get out on the other side. You either need to turn to him and repent and let the Lord take on those burdens or you suffer the consequences yourself. And that's kind of where they are. But he does make promises about this Lord who can burst these bonds, who could have saved. They just didn't want it. But you have to love how it ends in 15. He, he 
takes it all the way back to God, the same way Isaiah did and Abinadi does in the Book of Mormon. He talks about, Behold, upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. In this message of destruction and hard and consequence, there is this persistent promise of peace. And it is hope-filled. And I think it's what's going to carry Nahum all the way into chapter 2. There's some pretty strong language in Nahum chapter 2, which makes you wonder if Nahum really misses being able to talk about publishing peace in those beautiful verses at the end of chapter 1. Two is tougher because this is where he has to sort of lay down the law for what's going on with the Ninevites. But there's this interesting insertion that I think is important to note because you're going to see this message come through some of the other books of scripture. And I think it's pretty cool the way Nahum introduces it. He says into, for the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. And then he's going to talk about all the things that's going to happen, all the issues that Nineveh is going to have. The reason I think this matters is because I think what Nahum is trying to teach us is that it's not so much that the Lord helped the Assyrians win, especially over the children of Israel. The Lord doesn't bless the wicked. <laughs> That's not how that works. What happened is because the children of Israel didn't show up, they lost their blessings. They turned against the covenant relationship that the Lord has perpetually invited them into. They turned against it. And so the Lord had to pull back his light. And when the Lord pulled back his light, darkness floods. The same way, if I you know, mess with a light switch, I can turn on the light, but I can't turn on darkness. Darkness comes when the light is off. And that's basically what's happened here. It reminded me of if you ever played on a team, you know, like when we would play volleyball, there would be many games where I can remember losing, but it's not because the other team was so great or had all these, you know, had all this talent. It's because we didn't show up the right way. We had lots of fouls. We would serve into the net. We messed, you know, we didn't show up. And so we lost the game. That's kind of what he's saying here to the Ninevites. It's not that the Lord is helping them win. It's that because the Israelites lost their covenant connection, he can't help them. And then, you know, the light goes out and darkness fills the room. That's what's happening here. So when you go through the chapter, you're going to see the warnings about that, that they're going to cry out. At some point in time, the Assyrians are going to get conquered by the Babylonians and the Babylonians are going to show no mercy to this group and they don't deserve it, quite frankly. Like they, they're not repentant. They were torturous to all the neighboring areas and conquered everything in their path. And the Babylonians are going to wipe them out, basically. And so the warning, like in 10, is you're going to be empty and void and waste. In fact, he warns that the king who used to be able to dominate the land and go out and get prey and bring it back to his young, that that's not going to be an option anymore. There will be nothing for him to get. And that's kind of what happens with the Assyrians. They don't have any place to conquer anymore. In fact, they get conquered. One of the coolest things that I learned this week about this was the way the Lord shows up for those who have been abused. Assyria is a wicked, torturous, abusive nation. And there will come a point when the Lord says, enough. In fact, I feel like that's what he says in 13. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. There is no question where the Lord stands when it comes to abuse. And I think we've heard that in conference talks for the last several conferences about understanding how the Lord shows up for those who have been abused. And this is the end of the line for the Ninevites. Their gross wickedness is, it will stop. And if you, if that's something that triggers your heart, go into the notes because there were so many quotes from just this last conference and the one before that, ah, oh, so good. Anyway, I just think to know that the Lord stands up and says, this is finished, you're done, is a comforting thing for all involved. So go study the notes. Prophets teach that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that's basically the outcome you see in Nineveh in this last chapter. This is where Nahum talks about the bloody city and what's going to happen. I've always read that verse as like, because they cause so much bloodshed in their conquering that they're called the bloody city. And I think that that could still be true. But I also was thinking about what we've learned about the repentance process and what I learned in the Doctrine and Covenants about you know, after judgment, if you have chosen not to repent and not to turn to the Savior, then all the sins that you've committed, you have to suffer for. And I wonder if a piece of the bloody city is that. It's not so much this neon sign of how wicked you are. It's about 
where you'll end up and what's going to happen to your soul and how hard it will be for you to take on the consequences of your choices when you're as far off course as Nineveh was. I also think there's a warning in here about that there are no second generation saints. I was just talking to my sister Sarah about this idea that every generation, no matter how stalwart your parents were, you all, we all have to decide where we stand. I mean, think about it. just a hundred years ago, they were pretty solid. Everyone converted under Jonah, but within a few generations, it's completely gone. All of that testimony is gone. And so I think it's just this big reminder to carry on the covenant, you know, to do everything I can as a parent to, to pass on these promises and this testimony to the next generation, because they're going to need to form their own. I think it's why President Nelson told us to take hold of our testimony and, you know, choose, choose for yourself and your generation, how strong your link is going to be in the chain. And that's kind of the message I see in chapter three. He warns about the destruction that's going to happen in the city, that it's going to be so deep that they're going to stumble over bodies. Like that's, that's the level that we're talking about. The destruction when the Babylonians come is going to be so hard that Nineveh will be lost and it will be a bloody hard loss. Um, and he talks about why. So if you go through the verses, he'll lay out a few things like that. They were idol worshipers. They turned to witchcraft and sorcery to sacrifice to all kinds of issues. One of the things that jumped out at me though, is in verse seven. So he says at the end of seven, it says, who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? Meaning once all this hard stuff starts to happen, none of your neighbors will come to the rescue. Because like we said before, you, they've treated everyone so viciously that no one can come to their aid. What's interesting to me about that is, I think it's a warning to me too. You know how we've learned many times that the way the Lord often answers prayers is through other people. So if we are constantly trying to build relationships with other people and show love and kindness and help to our neighbors and our family and our friends, then that comes back to us, right? There's people he can turn to, to say, Hey, go take care of Maria. She's struggling <laughs> because I've created a relationship. So it's easy for them to come and serve me. Like just this last time. So we were in the hospital for Jason's fourth tumor just last week. And there wasn't a Relief Society sign up that went out. There wasn't any kind of formal help the Eckersley's campaign. People just came. You know, like my friend Gina just showed up with, <laughs> she sent me a text from Costco and said, what do you need? You know, like it's, that's how you know what a Zion society feels like when people just show up for each other. But God can work with Gina because we have this relationship where the Ninevites are is they've literally taken advantage and abused everyone around them. And therefore there's no one who he can turn to and say, could you comfort? There's no one left. That I think is one of the most haunting parts about Nineveh's story, that in their desire to conquer the world, they're at the peak of this hilltop and there's no one to turn to. Um, and it was just a sweet reminder to me to like, be part of Zion, <laughs> lift and, you know, lift up the hands that hang down and do what you can because you need each other and God needs to have people to work with. So build relationships. I just love that reminder. But he talks about what's happening with them. He says, basically, art thou better? This is around verse eight. He says, haven't you seen all the other wicked, idolatrous groups, all the ones of the past? They all just get conquered. You almost want to picture that statue, you know, that we were talking about with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where it was like it had a head of a certain metal and then a torso of another metal. And he's like, all of those are just going to get toppled. Haven't you seen how that's happened? All of them end up toppled. And so stop, learn from the mistakes of the past. And then he talks about basically like, go ahead, you know, like try to, <laughs> it's almost as if Nahum or the Lord is saying like, go ahead and try to defend yourselves, build up your strongholds, get as much water as you want, do whatever you think will help you. None of it can last because remember the Lord is against Nineveh. So he talks about that. He says, basically, you're going to turn to all those allies and those people that you've made wicked alliances with. I almost picture this like Gadiant robbers style, you know, like he's made some secret combinations with other wicked nations and they're all going to flee. They won't rise. They won't help. It's just like we see with Satan in the book of Mormon, right? He, he wraps people up in a flaxen cord and drags them down to hell. There is no rescue in his character. But what I thought was really cool is reading these last two or three verses in a contrast with what we know about the savior. So in 18, the shepherd's slumber. So where we talk about Christ as the good shepherd who never slumbers and never sleeps, 
This is the opposite, right? This is what the adversary offers. He sleeps through your pain, through your struggle. He sleeps. Um, he doesn't gather. When things get scattered, he doesn't gather. But the Lord does, right? So in the verse, it'll say, your people are scattered on the mountains and no man gathereth them. In 19, there's no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. And all that hear about it, clap. I think it makes you appreciate the God that we worship. He wants to be all these things. And it's interesting to me that when we're describing the adversary, or at least the adversary's effects on people who have turned against God, they're the exact opposite of what we see in the Savior. They cannot heal, they cannot gather, and they cannot save. Yeah, I tell you, I feel like I could handle almost any adversity if I could just understand why. You know, I, I believe the Lord can make all things work together for my good. I don't always understand why he picks that way. You know, there are times when Jason's cancer has come back and I'm like, I feel like I got it on the first three times. Why? Why is the cancer back? Again, this is a very common question that all of us have, whether yours is related to cancer or some other adversity. It's if we could understand the why, I feel like you could endure it. The second thing I always want to know is how long. You know, I can endure almost anything if I know it will end and I know roughly how long. You know, even things like labor, I feel like you kind of have a ballpark idea after six kids how long it's going to last and so you can endure, right? And I just feel like that's basically Habakkuk's question. He's facing a certain kind of adversity in the Babylonians. or He calls them the Chaldeans because this is early stages of the Babylonian Empire. And they will eventually become the Babylonians. But in this stage, they're, they're beginning and they're causing all kinds of devastation to the children of Israel or what's left of the children of Israel. And he is struggling because his people, although they're off course and not choosing the right, are not nearly as wicked as the Chaldeans are. And so he's saying to the Lord, basically, why? I know you're just. I know you're everlasting. Why are you letting these guys win? And one of the things that was so insightful to me that I learned from the spirit was this is God's not a referee. We tend to see, or at least I think what Habakkuk was seeing is he's saying, here's the Jews and here's the Chaldeans. They're so much more wicked than we are. And even though we're not doing great, <laughs> why do you let them win? And he's seeing them as going against each other, like a referee would see two teams. And what I think the Lord is trying to teach Habakkuk, at least what he taught me, is that the Lord isn't a referee, and this isn't a game against another group of people. This is a game against the natural man. And what he's saying to Habakkuk is, please remind the Jews that they have light and they have knowledge and they are accountable for that. That's the standard he's holding them to. The same way he's going to hold the Babylonians to a standard because of their light and their knowledge, which is limited compared to the children of Israel. So he's going to, they're not going against each other. And he's not a referee out to make sure that the law is enforced equally to both teams. What he's saying is, you're focused on the wrong things. You need to focus on teaching the children of Israel where they've gone wrong and stop worrying so much about the, Cal the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. So that's the overall theme of one, but I love the wrestle that he has to have to get there. So Habakkuk in these verses, especially in chapter one, what sounds different about this book is that it's not so much a story of what happens, it's a dialogue. So it sort of reminded me of Job. Remember when Job almost had chats with the Lord <laughs> where he was like, why is this happening? And have you forgotten about me? It's the same thing you feel with Joseph in Liberty Jail where he says, you know, why? It's not so much that I think Joseph wanted to get out of Liberty Jail, although I'm sure he did. It was about what was happening outside of the jail, that all the saints were getting attacked and people were dying and being raped and all kinds of horrific things were happening to the saints. And he was saying, why? Why do you let wicked people attack? Why? And how long is it going to last? So if you go in the notes, you're going to find links to a bunch of different scriptures that I felt taught this same lesson. But Habakkuk does it in an interesting way because he has to wrestle with the Lord a little bit to understand. And it's not like he gets an answer and all of a sudden things are okay. He gets a part of an answer and then he has to ask more questions. You know, it's almost like what you see with Nephi when he's in the Book of Mormon, he's trying to understand Lehi's dream and he gets a little bit more light and knowledge and then asks more questions of the angel and says, okay, show me some more. And the angel says, okay, let's go. And that's kind of what I get a feel from with Habakkuk, that he's, he's understanding things in layers. 
So you see in two, how long will this go on? How long will I cry out and have no one here? In three, why do you show this iniquity to us? Why are you treating us this, this way? In four, he talks about, therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. He's basically saying to the Lord, like, your punishments aren't fair. You know, we're getting punished heavily and we're more righteous than they are. That's not fair. It's not like you. Remember, Habakkuk's a prophet. So I think he inherently knows the character of God. He just doesn't understand like we don't. You know, he's seen through a glass darkly and he doesn't understand. And you just have to love the compassion of the Lord because he wants to help Habakkuk understand. So around five is where the Lord's answer begins. And he talks about that he's going to do something wonderful among this group. So in in five, it says, wonder marvelously for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe though it be told you. He, in the first couple of verses, Habakkuk wondered if the Lord even could hear. And now he learns in this simple answer that not only has the Lord heard him all this time, but he actually already has an answer in place. In fact, it's in motion. That I think happens to me all the time where I'm struggling because the Lord doesn't unfold all the revelation to me at once. You know, it's almost like a great big blanket that he's only unfolding one square at a time. And then every now and then you can like step back and be like, wait, I know there is a full blanket, even though I can only see a portion of it right now. I know there is it's going to continue to unfold and I'm going to understand. And that's where I think Habakkuk is. So he talks about it, how there's the Lord answers like in seven, that there is going to be this great and terrible judgment that will hit these people. It's not that they're going to bypass justice. There will be a judgment. He just doesn't, he isn't telling him how long he isn't telling him even why he's just saying, trust me, I've got this. There's things in motion that you can't understand. And doesn't that just sound like a lot of the answers you get where it's like, wait on the Lord. Trust me, I've got things in motion. Um, And so he waits. In fact, I love Habakkuk's response. This is one of my favorite chapters this week. So he basically says, I'm not sure I understand (laughs) this. You just have to love this because I think this is what it's like to be a disciple of Christ. It means you're going to talk with the Lord. This is what a relationship is, right? So if I'm going to have a relationship with the Lord, I'm not going to just take that partially unfolded answer and say, okay, God, you let me know when you got more to say, I'm going to be asking. I mean, some of the greatest revelations in the history of ever happened because questions were asked and questions upon questions were asked. So that's what he says in 12. Aren't thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, hast thou ordained them from judgment? Like he's saying, I know you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we do a certain thing wrong, we get this consequence. How is it that they're doing the same offense and they don't have a consequence? I don't see it. So he's asking the Lord, help me to see, give me eyes to see. And then it peaks a little bit in 13. He says, basically, he knows that God has pure eyes and can see things he can't see. But he says to them, Canst thou, how is it that thou canst look on iniquity? Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? How is it, God, that you're going to hold your tongue when they consume us, when they abuse us? How is it that you're holding still? And so he asked the Lord this, and he says, basically, you're making us like fish, that there's no rhyme or reason. There's no rule of law. That's what he knows God for, is that he is a God of justice and law. And it doesn't seem like they're playing by the same rules. So Habakkuk is wrestling and he wants to know more. And the answers come as he goes a little bit further down. So if you look in 17, one of my favorite questions is he says, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? This reminded me of my kids when they go trick-or-treating. So maybe your kids don't do this, but Sam, you know, the older they get, they like will come home and they'll dump out their pillowcase halfway through their trick-or-treating so that they can go back out and get even more candy. And there's just like this inherent greed in it. Jason totally encourages this in our children. (laughs) But you know, it's that idea that, but with like a, a horrific level, they're basically going out and consuming and abusing everybody in their path. And they get to the point where they like empty the net and then go back out and get some more. And so that's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. These are a wicked people. Why aren't they getting consequences? But the answer he gets is a partial one. And it comes in chapter two. I think the whole reason that Habakkuk gets another unfolding of this revelation, he gets more information, more light, more knowledge is because of what happens in verse one. 
So at the end of chapter one, we see all of his wrestling, right? He has questions for the Lord. He's even frustrated at the Lord's choices. He doesn't understand. He's got these you know, spiritual blinders that he's just struggling to wrap his head around why the Lord would choose this plan. But what happens in one is he says, but I'm going to show up anyway. This is his but if not moment that we talked about with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's basically saying, I will stand. So if you look in verse one, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. He's called to be a prophet and he knows the character of God. And so in this moment of, I don't understand, and there's so much uncertainty and how long, Lord, will this continue? He says, but I'm going to stand on my watch and I will show up. I loved that moment when I was reading it because I think this is what opens up another layer of revelation for Habakkuk. I know this because it happens for me. You know, there are times when I don't understand how long things are going to go. I don't understand why they're so hard. I don't understand why he's trying to teach me in this specific way. But I show up or I try (laughs) to show up. And when I try to show up, like I remember I told you guys something about scripture study, that this happened with scripture study with me when I was really struggling for revelation about Jason and I couldn't get the answers I needed. And I just didn't know where else to turn. And the answer I got was you need to do family scripture study. And I was almost angry with that answer because it didn't seem like it could solve any of my problems. And then as we were having prayer at family scripture study, Jason wasn't even there. Like it was a mess. Scripture study didn't go great, but it was in the prayer at the end of scripture study that the answer I needed came and it came clearly and it was life-saving, literally. Um, So yes, I've been in this moment, you probably have too, where if you just show up, the Lord will say, okay, Maria, you're ready for the next unfolding. Let me give you more. And so that's what happens here. Basically Habakkuk says, I'm going to show up. And because he does, the Lord says, all right, let's go. And so the next verse is, I need you to get some paper and pens or tables or whatever he's writing on. And he says, I want you to write everything I'm going to say so that people can run. In fact, I love this part of verse two. He says, you're going to write it plain on tables so that anyone can understand that he may run that readeth it. Anybody who reads these coming verses will be able to understand the will of God and move. This is faith in action, right? He's saying, I want people to know I want people to get it. I want people to get the urgency so that they can run. And what he lays out for us is pretty clear. He says, there will be an appointed time when justice will come to the Babylonians. I know you can't see it right now. Trust me. So three says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Meaning there will be a point when the Babylonians are conquered and this prophecy will be proven. Though it tarry, wait for it this piece I loved. I highlighted that a lot. In fact, we'll talk about in the object lessons as well. Um, There are lots of times when the Lord is saying, wait for it, Maria. I have something great coming. Wait for it. Stay on the path because it will surely come. That's the next line of that verse. So though it tarry, wait for it because it will surely come and it will not tarry. Everything is on the Lord's timetable and it is in motion. <laughs> you know, like we talked about with the gumball machine where the, I, when I picture prayer, I picture if I say a prayer and I ask for deliverance or help, I picture that gumball starting down that track and it's just going to take a long time to get to the bottom sometimes. And sometimes it's different than I expected it, but something comes. And so you just have to wait for it. And so that's what he's teaching him. But it's not a, I'm going to sit passively and wait. It's for, it says, you're going to live by faith. And oh, you should go on the notes. There's a lot of great quotes about what it means to live by faith, how this is a principle of action. This is Habakkuk had to stand and say, I'm going to stay on my tower, even though I don't understand all things. You know, Nephi had to say to the angel, I don't understand all things, but here's what I do know. That's the same message. And so now because he's made that stand and because he's writing it down, now he writes down all the woes. So they call these the woe oracles because in like five different places in this chapter, he says the word woe and then lays out what's going to happen to the Babylonians and why. They've had issues with greed. They've had, it seems like the predominant issue is they're taking advantage of the weak. It's kind of almost a flip side of that lack of charity that we've been talking about, but on, on where they have no understanding. They're basically manipulating. It reminded me of, what's the guy? The one my kids watch on YouTube, I can't think of his name, but he's Mark Rober. He's the one that does the glitter bombs, you know? And so he, he sets up a trap basically for people who are package thieves. And he does the same thing with like these telemarketers in India who are taking advantage of the elderly. And 
scammers. Anyway, it's kind of that sort of vibe. He's saying there's a certain level of evil that comes when you deliberately take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable and you will have consequences. And that's what the woes are. He's warning all about that. And then he also has some little promises woven in. So in 14, it says, for the earth shall be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And at first when I read that, I was like, why is that shoved in the middle of all these woes? <laughs> I, it seemed like an odd like insertion. And it could be just happenstance. But what came to me as I was studying it was, I think this is the promise that all those why questions that we have, like, why did we need to have cancer a fourth time? Why? You know, like all the hard things that happen, there will be a time when the earth is flooded with knowledge. And I'll know all the whys. I'll, I'll know all the answers to that. How long why did this have to take so long? Why? I will know all the answers. Jason will know the answers. My kids will know the answers. We'll know exactly why. Because the earth will be flooded with knowledge. And this is not just wisdom of the world. This is knowledge of God and in his plan for my family. And I think, you know, the further into this process, the more I start to understand that why. But the more I also get comfortable with the unknown. I don't know how long. I don't know why. And I get more and more comfortable with it because I've, I've come to trust the character of God. So I love that that piece is in there. There will be a time that I will know why and that you will know why. Um, and it will flood the earth and that will be a beautiful time to be alive. So I watch for those promises that are kind of tucked into all these woes. Another one that happens is if you look in um, 20. So after he's talked about their idol worship and their weak gods that they make with their own hands, 20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He is a God who never slumbers and never sleeps. And he sees all. I think the fact that he mentions all these woes and all the wickedness that he's seen happen among the Babylonians is something that must have been comforting to Habakkuk. Because remember, he wondered if the Lord wasn't seeing all their offenses. The same way if you have a referee that's not calling things on the other team and you're like, did you even see what they did? And what he's saying is, oh yeah, I've got tapes. I can, I've seen all of it. In fact, there's a record kept in heaven. I know all their offenses and all will be made right. That's the promise when he says, everyone can keep silence. He can see all things. That's the promise of 20. Chapter three in Habakkuk is actually a hymn. It's a song that was intended to be sung and it's a hymn of praise, which is interesting because if you look at the actual verses that we just read in two, you know that the Babylonians will eventually come to an end, but you have no way of knowing when that's going to happen. You know, a day to the Lord is very flexible. So I feel like Habakkuk really doesn't have any idea when this is going to happen to the Babylonians. He also doesn't know how long the misery is going to last for his people or how long it's going to be till they return and repent. Like he just, everything is still an unknown to Habakkuk. But what he knows is you're in the Lord's hands. That's what he knows. And that's what brings about his hymn of praise. Here's what I loved about this, you guys. Remember when we were studying Hannah and I told you that I got a sweet revelation when I was studying Hannah years ago about Jason and my worries, because she when she's praying for a son, she goes to the temple and she just gets the promise that a son will be born, that she will have a son. And it says that as she leaves the temple, her countenance changes and she's no more sad. And what I love about that is, like I told you guys, she doesn't, she's not pregnant yet. She couldn't have been pregnant yet, but she chooses to rest on the promise and let that be her light that lifts her and allows her to change her whole countenance. That's basically what happens with Habakkuk. He doesn't know when this is going to end or how it's going to end or when it's going to end. He just knows that God's hands are all over this work. And so he can rejoice, even though his circumstances haven't changed. Isn't that exactly what President Nelson has been asking us to do? To stop focusing on our circumstances to find our joy and instead get the focus of our lives right? Because if the focus of our life is right, then you can actually have joy. I mean, Habakkuk proves it. He has a whole hymn of rejoicing that he gives us because he now knows He's in God's hands and it's going to be okay. Not because he knows how or when, but because he knows the character of God and he knows I'm his son and he will take care of me. He will take care of this people. So he sings this song of praise and I just love the way it plays out. He basically says to the Lord, revive thy work. And then he goes back and talks about some of the miracles that the Lord has done in the past. So he's, he's not shying away. Remember, this is still an engaged conversation. Habakkuk doesn't have the answers yet. So he's still kind of, instead of wrestling with the Lord, he's saying like, 
hey, I'm just going to keep praying. <laughs> you know, I still pray for miracles, even though I'm okay with whatever the Lord decides for our family. But I still pray for miracles every day. That's kind of what happens here is where he's saying like, please come back to us, you know, come back and remember who you are to us. And, you know, it's this, and then he goes through some of the miracles that the Lord has given the children of Israel in the past. And I just thought there was a lovely reminder there that my prayers should be, I shouldn't shy away from asking for the help that I want and need, but I also should rejoice in the many evidences I have in my life of God's hand. Because when you take time to remember those spiritual stones. I think that's what Elder Anderson called them. He called them these, those spiritual memories that you preserve are like these glowing stones that can hold you in dark spaces. And that's what basically I think Habakkuk's doing. He's pulling out all these stones of joyful memories when the Lord has delivered them and saying, I remember this one and I remember this one. And so I know you'll be here for us when we need you. I just thought it was a beautiful example of choosing faith, choosing hope, despite dark circumstances. And so he says, basically, by the end of the chapter, although the fig tree shall not blossom and neither fruit beyond the vines, like everything's going to go, I get it. There's going to be famine and destruction, and it's going to be really bad. All these things are going to happen. And then 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my soul. I love the way he even says that. It's not that he will have joy. He's saying, I will joy. It's like an action. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know what it looks like, but it is a, he says, I will joy because of who you are. It's the same thing that Job eventually got to, right? He says, though, though he slay me, I will trust in him. It's the same message. He says, I, it's going to get really bad and I'm okay. I will rejoice in God. And then in 19, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet and he will make me to walk upon high places. This is such a great visual. I learned this from Michael Wilcox. I told you guys, he's one of my favorite teachers and he has a whole book kind of based on this metaphor here where he's, he talks about these goats. We're going to talk about the object lesson, but these are these, you know, Nubian goats that are in Israel and they can climb. You've probably seen them like on the nature channel. They're able to climb on the tiniest ledges and stand there. You know, they can like jump from one teeny tiny ledge to the other. Even the big males that have these huge horns, like Picture Loki, like that kind of horns. And they are able to balance because of the way their feet are designed. What I loved about this is I was just reading in the Book of Mormon about Nephi and his bow, just this morning actually. And I was noting the idea of like, when Nephi, when his bow breaks, the steel bow breaks, he makes a wooden bow and he prays to the Lord. First he goes to Lehi and he, try, he wants to know where to hunt. And the Lord doesn't necessarily make him a new steel bow. What he says is, let me show you a place that you can hunt. In fact, it's a place that you can hunt successfully with a wooden bow. Um, and, and I love that Nephi takes the wooden bow and a sling, just in case, because I think that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's being anxiously engaged in a good cause. Like, okay, Lord, bless me as much as you can, and I'm going to do everything I can. And between us, there's food, right? He goes out and he's successful in his hunt, and it saves his people. And that's kind of what he's saying here. This idea of hind's feet, it's, he's not saying... Make, make the cliffs wider so that I can easily get from one to the other. Change my circumstances, Lord. What he's saying is, change me. Give me feet that can balance on the smallest sliver of an edge and hold. You know, it, when you look at the, these animals, they actually have feet that like separate out. You'll see this in the object lessons. And they have grip on the inside that's almost rubbery so that they can hold the edges of these cliffs. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, I'm going to have moments of uncertainty and doubt. And where my sight is super limited, give me hind's feet. I don't need you to change the cliffs. I don't need you to change the world around me or any of my circumstances. Give me the ability to stand on those tiny little cliffs and feel sure-footed. When Michael Wilcox teaches about this, he talks about it with testimony. Where he says, this is what we should ask for. There are going to be times when you're not going to know all things. All of us are in there right now. But if you will ask for hind's feet, for the ability to stand in this small sliver of what you do know to be true, or what you do believe is good, he can give you the ability to balance and to hold there until a new cliff opens up so that you can leap a little further. Oh, don't you just love that piece of it? Go in the notes and you can read more about it. But I loved Habakkuk this week. where Habakkuk's message is one of wait on the Lord, patience. You know, it's just this kind of soft, gentle, be still and know that I'm God.
Zephaniah is much more choose you this day. It is your time is running out. That space to repent is running out and you need to act fast. And so his message is different. And what's interesting to me is the timing. So he's someone that is in the reign of King Josiah. So if you remember way back when I think it was in second Kings, we talked about Hezekiah and how he was this great King of Jerusalem and he built the tunnel and all that cool stuff. Right. And then there's two generations that come after him that fall apart. And then his great-grandson Josiah comes, and when he comes into power, he has this religious reform. And this is when they go and they try and rebuild the temple, and they find that lost scroll, and it's got that Indiana Jones vibe. That, that's where we are in time. We just don't know where Zephaniah lands in there. Most scholars I read thought that he must come right at the beginning of Josiah's reign. In fact, maybe Zephaniah's teachings are what inspire Josiah to be a better king than his father and his grandfather were. So I don't know, nobody knows exactly, but sometime in the reign of King Josiah, Zephaniah comes to teach the people. And his message is clear. It's the day of the Lord is coming fast and you need to change. And he warns about what they're doing wrong. So he talks about how there's going to be wickedness in the land and the Lord's going to cut them off. This promised land that they love is not going to last forever. And we know that from studying the history we've got so far in the Old Testament that even though King Josiah does a great job and tries to reform things, it doesn't last. They fall back into idol worship and sell off the gold of the temple and things go downhill pretty fast. So he talks about how he's going to stretch out his hand to Judah. Remember, he's, he's not going to be able to hold them forever. It's interesting what you see in 6. He says, And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for him. I thought one of the themes of this well, Zephaniah totally, but specifically this chapter is this warning about apathy. It is the same thing we saw with the brazen serpent, right? It's there is salvation and there is hope and you won't even look at it. You won't even take the time to consider it. I don't, you know, we all have times like this where we fall into apathy. In fact, I read a, what was it? It was a commencement address at BYU where he was talking about that somebody had accused his generation because he was like a valedictorian or whatever. So he was young. And he was talking about one of his professors had basically accused his generation of being passionate for apathy. And I thought that was such an interesting way to phrase that because you can get passionate for this idea of there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no nothing. I, I don't have to make a choice and I don't have to engage. And so his message was one of like, let's go, let's catch fire. Let's be better than what people expect of us. And I think that's what Zephaniah is trying to teach them as well. There is risk in apathy. One of the ways he talks about the apathy is this strange apparel verse. So if you look in seven and eight, it talks about how in the end of days, because all of this is sort of a type for what will happen at the end of time. And what's happening with the children of Israel is they're turning away from their, what makes them peculiar. And, you know, that covenant that makes them a peculiar people, they, they've turned away from. And one of the ways that shows up is in apparel. Here's what was interesting. So if you go on seven and eight, it talks about how there will be a great feast and that the king will have given them apparel and they will come in strange clothing instead. I loved this from what we just learned with Elder Bednar at conference, where he talked about this same idea in the New Testament, that parable from the Savior about a king who invites people to change their tunics so that they can come to the feast, and that those who choose not to basically are rebellious against God. They're not just, they think they're apathetic, but they're not, they're rebelling against. And so he, Elder Bednar talked about how many are called and few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? You know, we know how the scriptures play out. It's because they get their eyes fixated on the things of the world. And so you see that same warning here from Zephaniah, where he's saying this strange apparel isn't going to help you. You're designed to be distinct and different and you're choosing something else. And you like to think that that's neutral ground the same way you know, a lot of us tend to think that if we step away from the gospel, we're on neutral ground. And what we've learned over and over again is there is no neutral, that you're either on the Lord's side or not. <laughs> there, there's no middle. And so Zephaniah is warning them about that. So he says it in an interesting way in 12. He says, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles, meaning he's going to hope to find as much goodness as he possibly can when the Lord goes out to judge. And he will punish them that are settled on their leaves. That phrase, we studied this before, but it just means like that sediment that sits at the bottom of a cup or a vase of juice or wine in this case. It's what sits, you know, like if I've been latent in my gospel study or my testimony building too long, then I 
I start to have sediment that just sits. And I don't, you know, what he's saying is like that apathetic, I'm not working against the church, but I'm also not getting closer to God. That apathy is what has to be destroyed. We actually have to be engaged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because he has some like set rote bar that we're supposed to be jumping, but because the only way we can come to be like Christ is if we are doing the work. Remember what we've been studying the last few weeks where he basically says, you're going to come to know me by serving the poor. You're going to come to know me by living up to your covenants, by honoring all those things. That's how you become like me. So you can't be apathetic. It doesn't work in the Lord's gospel. So he's warning about that. Those that in the end of 12, it says that the, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. That's what they say. God's not good and he's not bad. I'm just, I'm not going to make an opinion. Everybody can do their own thing. That's a very tempting strategy that comes straight from the adversary. So Zephaniah is warning us about it. Then he talks about how they're going to build houses, but they can't inhabit them. I thought this was interesting because being apathetic doesn't mean you're lazy. It doesn't mean you're not doing anything. It means you're actively doing other things. You're busy in the thick of thin things. You know, that's what he's warning them about. And I think all of us can take care of that, right? There's, there's things that we could do better in all of our lives. So watch for that one in 13. 14, it goes even a little stronger. He says, the great day of the Lord is near. I thought this was interesting because a lot of his message in Zephaniah is about the great day of the Lord being near. But it's weird, right? Because this was thousands of years ago and the day of the Lord still isn't here. So how can the day of the Lord be near if he still isn't here? And then I had to read the Book of Mormon to get the answer. In Alma 34, we learn that this life is the time to prepare to meet God. So I think for me, when I was reading these verses about the day of the Lord being near, I think that's what it means. It means we each have this limited lifespan and we have no idea how long it's going to last. And then there is a time of where that space, that mortal space that we're granted to repent is done. I don't know how it shakes out in the next life. All I know is from what the prophets have taught, it is much harder to repent in that life. Even in the last conference, we heard about that. So I think this is the day to prepare to meet God. That's why the day of the Lord is near, even though it's still thousands of years away. In fact, I don't know how long it's going to be until the day of the Lord actually comes. But Zephaniah knew that for every person standing in his hearing, the day was near. Because their life, life expectancy is just as short as ours, if not shorter. So the day's near. So he warns. In the last couple of verses, he warns about, if you choose not to follow the light, you'll walk around in blindness. Even though when the Lord comes, the world will be full of light. I mean, have you ever wondered, like at the end of time, when the Lord comes again, how anybody could not follow? You know, if you see the Lord, how could you not all of a sudden convert? And I think... There's a couple reasons why that doesn't work out, but I think a big one is what we learned in the Doctrine and Covenants about how darkness comprehendeth not the light. It doesn't see it. It doesn't recognize it. It doesn't, it isn't warm to those who won't see. And so he warns, you'll be walking around in blindness and there, none of your gold or your silver or your power that you think you have can save you. You need to have the Lord. In the margins by chapter two, I have choose ye this day. That's... That's the big message of Zephaniah, at least in those first three verses, because he's still talking to the children of Israel. And I sometimes wonder if maybe Zephaniah, if, he, if these prophets were able to read each other's writings, because if he could have read about what happened in Nineveh over a hundred years ago, he may have had hope that despite the fact that the children of Israel are way off course and deserving of all kinds of harsh justice, there's proof and evidence that the Lord is merciful and they just need to turn. So he asked them, gather yourselves together before things happen. In fact, in two, you see that word before many times. I highlighted all of them. Before the anger comes, before the Lord judges you, you've got this, a tiny fraction of space left in this window of mercy. Take advantage of it. So in three, he says, how? Seek the Lord, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgments. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, that it may be, that you may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. It's the same promise we see in the New Testament, that no matter how far off course they are, if they turn to the Lord in that pivotal moment, he can forgive and he can say, go thy way and sin no more. You are, you're hid from his anger when your heart turns. So that's what he's trying to get them to understand. It just reminds me of, I think I said this once before, but Elder Maxwell talks about if you can 
this isn't a quote, this is just a summary, but he says like, if you think that there's a possibility that there will be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, then why not today? Like, even if there's a fraction of you that has just a desire to believe that that's possible, then change, change today. Cause you just don't know when the day of the Lord will come for you. So I just, I, I, that's what I felt as I was reading these verses. I also love the promise that he's the author and finisher of your faith. That's what Zephaniah is trying to teach them. Like he will make you a new path. Nineveh a hundred years ago is proof of this, that they were ripe for destruction and had a prophet that was coming to say in 40 days, it's done. And because of their repentance, a whole new path opened up. And that's what he's trying to help them understand here as well. I just think it's the same thing we see. If you look in DNC 88, what verse is it? It's in my margins, 32, DNC 88, 32. This is where the revelation is basically saying like, I will give you as much as you are willing to receive. I think that's the promise here as well. He's saying all the goodness, all the mercy, all the forgiveness I can offer, I will give you whatever you're willing to receive. It's it's us that gets in the way. It's not the Lord's hand that isn't extended far enough. So that's the message of two. The rest of chapter two is focused on the woes and the warnings to all the surrounding nations. Um, and they're pretty strong because remember, this is a type and shadow for the days the end of days when all wickedness will be destroyed. And this is kind of like a, a microcosm of that happening now. So there's, he's talking about the destruction that will happen to all those surrounding areas before Zion can come again. After talking to all those other nations and warning them, Zephaniah goes right back to the heart of things by talking to those in Jerusalem saying like, you're running out of time. And so you'll see that he talks about how the Lord was in their midst. You know, in Old Testament terms, the word midst doesn't just mean like, somewhere around. It means in the heart of. He's right there in the middle and you've missed it. You know, it's like if you've ever heard somebody talk about a Black Friday sale and the thing they bought was the thing you need to buy and you're like, ah, I missed it. That's what he's saying to the, the children of Israel, that there's going to be some point in time when you realize how close the Lord was to you and you missed it. Um, and that is a that is a warning all in of itself. When you go a little further, he does this interesting teaching strategy. I've actually found this has been really helpful to me as I've been talking to family members and friends who are struggling with their faith or who have lost it entirely, that I found that it doesn't help me very much to combat their points of doctrinal frustration. What really seems to make any kind of sway is just to build up what is good. Uh, you know, I read this from a prophet once where he talked about our job when we're doing missionary work is not to tear down the houses of other people. I can't remember which prophet this was. I'll see if I can find out, I'll put it in the notes. But our job is not to tear down the houses of other belief systems. Our job is just to build next door this beautiful goodness. And eventually they're gonna basically kind of walk over and say, tell me more about this house. <laughs> you know, the same way I might walk over to my neighbors and be like, I really like your garage doors. Where did you get those? That's the same kind of idea. He's saying, build up what's good. So when I'm talking to friends and family, I'm trying hard. In fact, this, just this week, I, I remembered this as I was studying Zephaniah, that there's a conversation I could have done better <laughs> where I need to just teach what's good. So when friends or family have questions or frustrations, don't worry so much about the fine points of doctrine. Just talk about what's good. What is good in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What hope do you have in it? Why do you turn to it over and over and over again in times of struggle and trial? Because that's what Zephaniah is doing. He talks about Zion. Instead of focusing on all the things they're doing wrong, he builds up this beautiful mansion of Zion and says, look how good it will be. So he talks about pure language that will come, that they'll all be united again, that there will be offerings, that there will be no more wickedness, no more you know, no more great and spacious building, people whining at you and making you feel small. All that's going to go away. There's no more evil, no more warfare, no more bloodshed, all these promises. There's no more lying, no more deceit. And then when you have this beautiful goodness built, the result is you'll sing. Like when you're a part of this, when you belong in that neighborhood this built that's built in this beautiful Zion type way, you'll sing out. So that's what you see in 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, be glad and rejoice with all thy heart. They're supposed to rejoice that this can happen. Remember, this is another Hannah type. Take joy in this moment, even though you're not experiencing 
the circumstances yet take joy that this can and will happen. So he talks about what will come. So the Lord will take away your judgments. He will invite you back home. So that's in 15. He cast out thine enemy. He has taken away thy judgments. He's in the midst of thee. In 16, he tells you to fear thou not and let not your hands be slack. Don't get apathetic. You know, we've already been warned about that. You got to be anxiously engaged in this work. In 17, and this is one of my favorites, he says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love and he will joy over thee with singing. I love this because often we talk about how we'll feel when we have the Savior in the midst of us, that we'll feel joy. But what he teaches in this verse is that the Savior feels joy too, that he loves you and he wants you home. It's when at Time Out for Women, I talk about those missionary mom hugs, you know, like you build that up in your head and then you finally get to that moment when you can have them back in your arms. That's, that's what I think the Lord is experiencing. It is the profound joy of there's no more separation between us. I'm right here in the midst. And that doesn't mean I'm nearby hovering. It means I'm right at the heart of you and I'm here and there's no one to separate us again. That's the promise of the second coming, that there will be no more separation. The Lord will be among us. And that doesn't mean around us. It means in us, near us, and we can rest on that promise and you can take joy in it. So I love what he comes from that. He says in 18, I'll gather them that are sorrowful in 19. I will undo all that afflict and I will save her that halteth. It is a promise of whatever damage has been done, whatever breaches have occurred, he will repair the breach. He will undo. I don't think it means you'll forget all the hard. I think part of the reason we'll become like him is because we've been through the hard. What he promises is that he will undo and heal what needs to be healed. There's an ultimate promise there that all will be restored. And that's what he sees. Those that have been driven out will be brought back home. And then in 20, it kind of hits this pinnacle point where he says, I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. There is dignity and belonging in understanding that you have a name and a place with him. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all of us who take his name upon us, who are willing to live the covenants as imperfectly as we do, that we belong. That's the big banner message of heaven. You belong here. This is your home. That This mortal experience you were just traveling through, you belong at home. And I think when you do your best to live the covenants and to repent when you need it, that's how you'll feel when you get there, that you belong. And everybody else who's there does too. And I, I look forward with a lot of hope for that day. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week 39, and I've got some fun object lessons to help you let these beautiful verses just sink in a little deeper into your kids' hearts and minds. The first one is based on what we read in Habakkuk and this understanding that though it's going to take some time, if you wait for it, the Lord's answers will come. I love Habakkuk's example to me of revelation that unfolds slowly. And the way I want to teach that is creating this little roller. So we're going to actually create a magic trick of sorts. This is one of those moments where as a parent or a teacher, you get to do something that your kids will be like, wait, how did that work? Because <laughs> you're going to see this roller roll forward and then out of nowhere, it starts to roll back. And it's so cool. So this one, you just need the basic supplies of an oatmeal container, some rubber bands, the printable, of course, and then the few paper clips to hold things all together. The trick to this one is in the weight. So for the weight on this one, you just need a heavy-ish battery, like a nine volt or a size C. If you don't have either of those on hand, you could also do like a few double A's kind of bundled together and that would do the trick. That's your first one. The second one is all about Ibex. So if you haven't read in the insights, I talk about something I learned from Michael Wilcox about the Ibex. It's this cool goat that lives in the Judean wilderness that can catch on the tiniest ledges and work its way up a mountain or down a mountain. But since this is multimedia week, rather than having you act this out or make a craft, we're going to actually just go online and watch it. So I give you some links in the notes of cool Ibex videos, and I'll walk you through how to apply those to these scriptures. But you're going to learn a lot about this really cool animal and why it has some big spiritual application for us. Okay, your third one, it's Christmas time, you guys. So you should prepare yourself to make a few Christmassy things in the coming weeks. 
one of the ones I really wanted to focus on this week was that verse at the end of Zephaniah where he talks about how the Lord feels joy. I think one of the reasons we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, is because he feels joy and we feel joy that this time is finally here. So I wanted some way to capture that and put it on my tree. So that's what we've created. I designed these little printable ornaments that are kind of 3D globish that have the message of joy to the world and also that beautiful verse from Zephaniah. But my intent with these is not just to make a pretty thing that hangs on your tree. My hope is that you'll go into, I'll walk you through this in the object lessons, but that you'll be able to actually change some things about your holiday season to simplify and feel more joy. So I'm going to walk you through some prophetic guidance about how to pull that off and then give you the printable tools to make those goals a reality. That's it for week 49. You guys, oh, we're getting so close to the end of the Old Testament, but I just want you to be rest assured we are going to keep things rolling into the new. I'm kind of excited to just go deep into the New Testament. Also because, you guys, we've spent the last three years studying about the Savior in so many other books of Scripture that now to have this culminating year where we study His actual mortal ministry, I just can't wait for it. Like, I really can't wait. So hopefully a bunch of you will come along for the ride with us. If you already have an annual subscription or even a monthly subscription, it will just keep rolling as it always has done um, through, through the next year. But obviously if you want to extend it or invite friends to come and join us, I promise it will be a year where we come on to Christ. My focus will be heavily on how do we come to him? How do we learn from his stories? How do we help those stories help our kids and our classes? And I think it's going to be a really good year. So I hope you join us. Um, as always, if you have questions about this week's study, you're welcome to post a question on the discussion boards. If you want to chat with me, you can join me on Instagram Live. That's Monday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. I'll take a half an hour to talk through some of the insights I missed and then also give you a heads up on the object lessons so you know what supplies you need. But big things are coming, you guys. I hope you join us. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.